welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. Speaking to a group of governors at the White House earlier this year, President Trump gave an update on DACA's legal status and the administration's plan to scrap it. DACA is going to be put back into the Ninth Circuit. You know, we tried to get it uh, moved quickly because we'd like to help DACA. I think everybody in this room wants to help with DACA. But the Supreme Court just ruled that it has to go through the normal channel, so it's going back in, and uh, there won't be any surprise. The surprise may be how things have changed. The president's patience is wearing thin, and he's now threatening that if the Ninth Circuit doesn't hand down a decision by the end of the month, he'll go to the Supreme Court again, this time with its newly formed conservative majority. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General for the Justice Department's Office of Immigration Litigation. Leon, it is often frustrating for litigants to wait and wait for a decision in any case, but how unusual is it for the administration to write a letter to an appeals court warning the judges to issue a decision or else? Well, it is extremely unusual. It happens maybe once every few years. Uh, The last time I remember this happening was the uh, Texas litigation when the President Obama at that time wanted to do the deferred action for the parents of the uh, U.S. citizens. And that case was being held up by the Fifth Circuit. And a similar concept was, was employed, which is to tell the lower court, hey, the Supreme Court term is from October to June. And if you don't let us get an argument soon, then we'll have to wait till next October to start again in order to get a decision in June. And so that's why they have this sense of urgency here. So the Ninth Circuit has ruled against Trump on the travel ban, sanctuary cities, and his proposed ban on transgender soldiers in the military. Is the government anticipating that the Ninth Circuit is going to rule against it on DACA? Is that why it's so concerned about getting the case to the Supreme Court? Yes, correct. They they believe that based on the way the oral argument went and based on past immigration decisions from the judges on that three-judge panel that, that, that did the DACA claims, uh, did the DACA case, that they believe that there's no doubt that that case is going to go against the government, and so they want to move it to a court where they view they have a more likely favorable outcome here, and also to sort of get this DACA issue within the courts resolved so that they can return it back to Congress. Let's. Why don't you explain, because there have been so many ups and downs and so many court hearings, where the DACA program stands right now in the courts? Sure. Sure. The DACA program continues to exist pretty much the same way President Obama created it, except no new people can enter DACA. But if you have DACA status, you can keep renewing it. And so what happened is that when the president tried to end DACA, all the courts except for one court has said that the ability to end DACA is limited by the fact that you have to give a reason that is justifiable under the law. And every one of the courts has disagreed with the Attorney General Sessions' reason, which is that he believes DACA is illegal. And so this has kind of created this this difficult, you know, uh, legal knot that has to be untied where the courts are ultimately going to have to come down to make a decision. Is DACA legal or is it not? And if even if it is legal or illegal, 
the question is, what does that mean moving forward for the program? And so that's what has to be decided by the Supreme Court anyway at some point, whether it's this year or next year. What is the administration's, why is the administration expressing a sense of urgency here when this program has been in place for so many years? What's the urgency? As a judicial matter, it's very hard to show any urgency because for exactly the reason you said, people have had this status for many years now. We have record low unemployment. We have record high job openings. So clearly there's not an economic impact that's negative here. So from all of those standpoints, I think you're correct. The urgency is more on the political front, which is that the president understands that this DACA issue is critical toward trying to get a global solution for funding his other immigration priorities, such as the wall and other reductions in legal immigration. And so he realizes that as long as this is in the courts, the Congress won't make a deal on this DACA issue. Some legal analysts are saying that the Trump administration wants to get this to the Supreme Court now, especially because Justice Brett Kavanaugh can provide the fifth vote to unwind the program. What's your take on his approach to immigration law? Well, I I do think that the, the timing of the letter is timed around Justice Kavanaugh's arrival at the Supreme Court, given that when there was four to four, it made no sense for the case to get to the Supreme Court. Now that it's five to four with five conservative justices, it makes more sense for the Trump administration to want the case at the Supreme Court. I do believe Justice Kavanaugh pretty much on everything I've seen him do in terms of immigration, is going to find that the DACA program is not authorized by statute. And so if the justification for DACA is that it's a completely prosecutorial discretion program, then the same discretion that President Obama had to institute it means that Trump has the same discretion to eliminate it without giving any reason of any kind. That's where I think his position is going to come down. And I think, you know, they'll probably have all five of the justices that are conservative to sign on to that position. So what would happen to the roughly 700,000 dreamers if, if, uh, if the Trump administration wins at the Supreme Court? Well, then I think that's a question that is for the administration to decide whether they would let the permits lapse organically, you know, because each, each DACA recipient has a work permit that expires at a specific time, or whether they'd yank them all at one time. In the past, they said they'd let them expire organically, so I think they would continue that position. And so what would happen is as each DACA recipient's work permit expired, that would be the end of their DACA status. They just wouldn't be able to renew it again. So, Leon, how would the just let's suppose the Ninth Circuit doesn't rule and the Trump administration wants to appeal this to the Supreme Court without the Ninth Circuit? What would the grounds be and what legal vehicle when the court has said basically that, you know, you have to go through the normal process, go through the Ninth Circuit, then it comes up to us? Well, the Supreme Court did say that they expected, in that decision, they said they expected that the Ninth Circuit would move in a timely, or or I forget the exact wording, but timely or efficient manner. And so it would just be whether the Supreme Court thought that the Ninth Circuit was not moving in a timely or efficient manner. The normal Ninth Circuit case takes about a year from beginning to end to resolve. So we're certainly not there within the, the normal case. Now, there could be an argument, well, they should be processing this faster than the normal case. 
Uh, and also, you know, they really have until January. It's not October. January is really the deadline to get the case decided in this Supreme Court term, meaning that a decision would be entered by this June rather than by next June. And so I do think at the end of the day, after all of this bluster, there will be a Ninth Circuit decision prior to January, which means there will be a Supreme Court decision this year. All right. Thanks so much, Leon. That's Leon Fresco. He's a partner with Holland and Knight. We're live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Three British currency traders are defending themselves in a New York courtroom against charges that their so-called cartel rigged the $5.1 trillion a day currency market. Joining me is Lannan Wen, Bloomberg News FX reporter. So tell us about the chats and phone calls, what seems like some really colorful prosecution evidence. Yes, it certainly is colorful evidence. Uh, The prosecution have presented chats from these traders who clearly knew each other very well. Um, They joke around with each other. They say, you know, I owe it all to you, um, to each other when trades go well. And um, we even have one joke from a trader who says, for compliance purpose, no collusion going on here. Ha, ha, ha. So um, obviously this is not really uh, looking great from a sort of, you know, just a lingo perspective. Um, But it's whether the prosecution will be able to prove that that actually means the traders colluded and, you know, uh, caused the market to be unfair is, is another point. Well, how is the defense besides that going to counter this evidence that seems to be spelling out the prosecution's case? Well, what the defense is trying to say is that the traders all did this as a standard practice. They were all talking to multiple people in chat rooms all the time to get information, to understand what was going on in the markets, and to be able to sort of use that as an edge in their trading. And what's interesting also is that the defense has pointed to the fact that sometimes the traders said one thing in the chats and then did another thing in their trading logs. Um, So it's more like a game of poker is what the, the defense are trying to claim here. Now, the prosecution's star witness was a member of the group that the prosecution flipped. He's on the stand now. How is he doing? And he actually just left the stand earlier today. But what he has been doing has been very measured. He's very calm. Um, the, all the traders are British, and so you know they present um, you know in a very calm British way. Um, and uh, he basically laid out his reasoning um, for being in the chat room, for you know trying to gain advantage, um, helping out other traders, and trying to to basically team up with them in order to get the outcomes that they want to move the prices in the direction that they wanted to. On cross-examination, was the defense able to establish any parts of its case with this witness? I think the defense was able to say, look, these you, you all had this information from each other as well as other participants in the markets. Did you act independently? Um, the defense really did hammer home that point. Even though the traders knew all of this stuff that was going on in the markets, when it came to the end of the day, they would sit at their desk and punch in their own numbers and trade independently of each other. So that's really a, a strong point that the defense is trying to make right now, that they're all, they all may know similar information, but they're all acting independently and maybe in parallel. But, you know, it's, it's coincidental. All the markets were sharing information and, uh, you know, there isn't any specific antitrust collusion here. Uh, on cross-examination, the defense was able to get into evidence that the UK's serious fraud office had dropped the charges against these three. Why did the judge allow that, you know, information from another jurisdiction into this case? 
I think probably the judge allowed that because this is going to become a factor in both cases, both the arguments from both sides. The the defense is trying to say, look, these are British traders, um, you know, that the the U.S. doesn't have scope to prosecute them. And actually, one of the witnesses for the government today was trying to make the point that a lot of these trades affected U.S. entities. So they gave examples of the amounts, the dollar amounts, and the number of counterparties that were trading in the U.S. that may have been affected by these trades. So it's going to be a com- become a battleground whether this is relevant to the U.S. or whether these British traders should have uh, you know, stayed in the U.K. In your story, you talk about how they, they almost knew at one point that they were being watched, but they kept on going. So in 2012, we have the LIBOR scandal that starts to become reported in the press in the UK. And so these traders start to think, hmm, well, is there any commonality with what's happening in LIBOR versus what they're doing in their own chat rooms? But clearly it hasn't dawned on them, um, you know, that that the government might find these two situations very similar. So they actually do make a couple of jokes about that. How much is the government on online here as far as it has to prove its case or, uh, you know, what repercussions if it's not able to make this case? Well, I think this is a very critical case. Um, obviously, the foreign exchange industry has gone through a lot of soul searching and huge, huge amount of um, penalties and fines. Um, we have about $14 billion all told for all the global banks who were wrapped up in this um, benchmark scandal in foreign exchange. So I think one only one person in foreign exchange, an individual trader, has been convicted of um, fraud prior, prior to this case. So I think it is a very, very important uh, bellwether for whether there are going to become more individual prosecutions as a result of this scandal. Has has the crackdown and the scandal helped to clean up the industry? I think the industry has changed a lot. A lot of the people that I speak to actually feel like they're being watched by Big Brother all the time. Uh, and they're, they've really, really cleaned up in terms of the language they use, uh, being more careful about sort of professionalism and, and conduct in general and anything that might signal to their compliance department that they're even just being a little bit naughty. And obviously naughtiness is not the same thing as, as committing crimes, but uh, there, there is definitely an awareness in this market that the, uh, the actions and the, the settlements that occurred before um, are no longer acceptable, and um, so they're very, very cautious these days. All right, thanks so much for watching the trial so closely and reporting on to us. That's Lennon Wen. She's the Bloomberg News FX reporter. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.